First Church Charlotte. I am honored to bring you the word of the Lord today. The joy of my life, the high calling of my life is to communicate the themes of the kingdom of heaven, to share the gospel of the Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and also continually invite you to a closer walk with the Lord, continually place before you a spiritual invitation. And so I want to do that again today. I want to place before each of you a spiritual invitation to a closer walk with the Lord. How many of you want to walk closer with him than you ever have? I, I crave that in my heart and in my spirit. I don't want to just be religious. I want to be spiritual. Amen. So uh, turn with me, Luke chapter number 9 and verse number 51. Why don't we stand together as our habit is, and we will look at Luke 9 and verse number 51. Special thank you to uh, David Milcher. Wave your hand, David. Uh, he has been a part of some of the projects we've done around in the church. You'll notice that uh, all of the, uh, we've completely painted both buildings. Um, he has been involved in that, and uh, he has tried to to do it basically for free and finally I I made him accept money because he has a family too and uh, he has a heart to bless the kingdom of God and we're thankful for people like Dave and uh, also also uh, Jeremy and Nathan and I don't know who all have been here uh, working but we've they've reconfigured all of the lights we actually are technically correct now where we have anyway I won't explain uh, <laughs> But there's just been a ton of work going on around here as people have volunteered their time. Anthony's been up here doing elect, uh, electrical wiring. Um, our worship pastor, Nathan, just signed on as an assistant painter with David this week and just not only prepped and got all his stuff done, but he worked basically 40-hour week plus uh, here at the church just because it was in his heart to do so. Uh, I'm honored to serve the Lord with such great people as these. Luke 9, verse number 51. Before we read, let me just say I'm probably forgetting a few people. Forgive me. Uh, I will be sure to blow you up later. 9 and 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for Jesus to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciple, disciples John, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command? Notice that verb choice there. Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so they went on to another village. Uh, at first, take across this, I love it, because uh, we're not called to fight. If someone doesn't want to, just go to the next village. We don't have to fight over it. We don't have to make enemies over our, our faith, over our gospel. If they're not ready... 
don't get into flame thrower business and call it anointing. Just go to the next village. There'll be hungry, hungry people at the next village. Amen. I'm preaching this subject of crossroads, crossroads. Before you're seated, uh, fist bump your neighbor and say, I'm glad you're here. You make me look better. So my wife has made me look like a bad husband two services in a row. And uh, I want to be clear that she and I are always ask each other to encourage. We always gripe at each other. You help me because normally we bring each other sugar. (laughs) And so that's why that happened. But if you want to think bad of me, go ahead. There's a line. You can just take a number. So um, I love all you guys. I'm so glad to go to church with you. I am. My life is better because of you. And I've been so called to be a part of this kingdom of heaven. And it's a it's a peculiar kingdom. It's it's not. Not uh, a kingdom that would make sense to people here on earth in the manner of a hierarchy or the manner of a dominion, but it very much makes sense in the in the element of its of its natural being. In the kingdom of heaven, it makes sense to prefer one another, and in the kingdom of heaven, it makes sense to assume that your brother or your sister is better than you and is deserving of higher honor than you. And so, I want to I want to bless all of you today in the name of the Lord Jesus. We are we are. So such a blessed people. God has been so good to us. We're just three weeks out from Easter, and um, I'm sure has already been mentioned while I was running next door. Uh, we have some uh, invitation slips uh, for you to take with you and invite friends and neighbors. But in my personal devotion, I, as we have approached Easter, I have found myself repeatedly wondering what Jesus was doing, uh, say, five weeks out. And then the next week in my personal devotion, I would find myself, I wonder what Jesus Jesus was doing four weeks out, and I wonder what he was doing three weeks out, and I I quickly discovered and I quickly learned that the Bible doesn't give us a clean or a clear chronology of those last few weeks. It's not as though we know instantly uh, this day he's doing this. All we know is that there were several things that were happening in the last few weeks of his ministry and his calling. It's It's as though scripturally there are themes that emerge, but we don't have an itinerary. Does that make sense? And so I have found myself uh, repeatedly in my my personal uh, devotion visiting these themes of the last weeks before Easter because uh, we celebrate on Easter the the largest worldwide celebration of Christianity in the world, as we should. We celebrate that together. Uh, But in these last weeks, several things things are happening. Uh, The first of them is it's a difficult time for the disciples. Um, Don't don't hurry past that. Try 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 to understand it here for a moment. It's a quite difficult time for the disciples. They they don't have clarity on what is happening. Personally, speaking for myself, I know that it's much easier to understand or make it through something when I understand what's going on. But if I don't understand what's going on, uh, it can be very, very uh, disorienting. Um, I remember the few times I've been put under because of surgery or because of treatment uh, in my personal uh, health experience. There's always this moment where you you come back into yourself. It's like you are you again. And there's this moment of, of disorientation. And there's usually, if it's a well-run health facility, there's some 
someone there who will immediately give you information. They will immediately speak a, a calming influence to you to give you the information you need to feel secure. Because if you don't know what is happening, if you don't know where you are, why you are there, um, it is it is very um, it, it it amps up the anxiety. Not only that, but it also uh, contributes to shock and the effects of shock in a person. And so, a lot of times, if you are the first one to visit, say, an accident scene, and someone someone is coming out from unconsciousness, one of the best things you can do is just give them the information at that moment. Uh, they're they're going to, you're with them. It's going to be okay. You're, you get them involved in the details of who they are, what's your name, all these kind of things. And you'll notice this uh, with emergency workers. They're always asking these really mundane details uh, of a person's life because that reminds us who we are. It reminds us where we fit and it helps us to relax. And so imagine being a disciple and all you know is this man who you know is more than just a man. This man who speaks and the blind eyes are opened, not just in the manner of a medicine applied, but as a demonstration of divine power over the physical world. That's what a miracle is. A miracle is a testimony of God. I want you to see that. A miracle is a testimony of God. There is more to this world than just physics. There's more to this life than just the physical. And whenever there's a miracle, it is a testimony of God. And it is usually chosen and uniquely positioned by God to manifest that He is working in a situation or through a person or in an individual's life. It becomes a testimony of God. And so Jesus moves among the villages. He heals and his disciples are there to see. They know that no one has ever spoke like this man. They know that he is unique. He is is of God. Uh, There is no one like him. And then he tells them after not a very long ministry, three and a half years, that's not even an undergraduate degree, is it? Now, three and a half years is not very long. I want you to see how uh, in this, that short amount of time, in that short amount of, of exposure, he's already telling his disciples that they need to get ready for him to leave them. They need to get ready for him to go away. And this is very disturbing to, to them. Uh, they don't want him to go to Jerusalem. In fact, one author, one of the Gospels, uh, he says they're astonished when he set his face toward Jerusalem, as if to say, he's really going to do what he's been talking about? It's one thing to talk tough. I should know. I've been doing it for years. It's something else to do what you say you're going to do. And now he is not being talked out of Jerusalem. He sets his face. He sets his intentions. He, as it were, makes his intention clear, and he will not be dissuaded or talked out of it. Peter tries. The other disciples, I'm sure, are quick to agree with Peter. He will not be turned away. He is going to Jerusalem. And he tells them why he is going, but they just don't understand. They cannot see that what they need is redemption. What they really want is dominion. And this is an important distinction that has very crucial insight to what it means to be a Jesus follower. You see, if what we need is redemption, then the number one problem in our life is our sin. If If what we need is dominion, then the number one problem in our life is other people's sin. 
And if you give us power, then we'll control them. Do you see? But if the point is you must be cleansed of your sin and washed of the old nature, if the biggest problem that God himself will not be talked out of is sin, then it makes sense that Jesus would not be satisfied to simply heal their physical body and leave their souls under the ravages of sin. What the world needs, what the disciples need, what the religious community needs is redemption, not dominion. Even today, Christ does not force himself upon us. Somebody say, that's true. God does not. You know why you must believe? Because he will not win through dominion. He will manifest his dominion, but not over the sovereignty of your individual choice. That's why he goes places and he does no great miracles there in the scripture. He will not force himself beyond your choice. And when you see the promises of God and you accept them, you are doing through submission what he will not force through dominion. That's why you repent. You choose to repent. God does not force himself. You choose to believe that he is your hope. You choose to receive of his promise is anointing. He will not force you. You must surrender. And so Jesus, stay with me. I'm, I'm going somewhere. I just want to uh, be, I want to be fair to the context of these, these last weeks before Jesus is going. Jesus is, is on his way. He sends the 70 out before him in these last weeks before his crucifixion. And he sends them into areas that are Gentile. Up till now, his ministry has been directed wholly at the house of Israel. But in these last days, he sends them to places that include Samaria. And he, he invites them to, to go out into that land or sent out two by two, uh, 35 teams spread out through the countryside and they go into homes and they say, look, Jesus is going to come through here. I would like you to meet him. I would like you to have a chance to meet Jesus. He wants to bless you on his way to Jerusalem. In some ways, church, this is still what we do. We go tell the world Jesus would like to meet you. Jesus would like to know you. He is doing a great work. But as he comes through this part of the country, he wants to bless you and bless this house. And so these, these, these teams go out. And, and there are some villages that receive him and some that do not. And, and when the, 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 the villages in Samaria do not receive him and they, they reject him, uh, Peter... Uh, excuse me, not Peter, but uh, James and John, uh, they're, they're riled up in their spirit and they're, uh, they're how, how, what, you know, who do these people think they are not to receive you? And they said this, Lord, would you like us to command fire to fall down from heaven? and consume them all. Now, Jesus has been kicked out of any number of Jewish villages. They thought that was fine. But the moment the Samaritans kicked them out, they're ready to, it seems like fire from heaven is just about right. A lot of times we're not even aware, aware of the prejudices that are within us. We need Lord, the Lord to renew our heart and create in us a clean heart. Can I have a big amen? They never wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans, I mean on the Jews, but you let them Samaritans show a little bit of a of, of, of bad attitude. Let's just burn them all. Uh, Jesus, ask yourself this question. Why would they use that verb command? Would you like us to command? Well, I want you to remember that in these last days, Jesus has been opening understanding to them. He said things to them like this. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. And they were listening. And they thought that meant dominion. 
And Jesus, interestingly, and I, I told the 9 a.m. service, I've been thinking about this passage a lot, and I, I don't have understanding there. I'm kind of like the children of Israel. I'm circling Mount Moriah. And up on top of there, I hear rumblings and I see fire, but I can't get up there at the moment. And there's something here that is so deep and so profound. Jesus doesn't say, I'll do anything for you as long as you don't ask for something stupid. That's what we say. He leaves it open-ended. He leaves it as a spiritual invitation to you. I will do it. But in truth, if you ask for something stupid, he's going to be like, nah, don't think so. You don't know what spirit you are of. And if I were to give you what you asked in this spirit, I would be building another kingdom. If you are of the right spirit, then I will give. I want you to see how they, they're struggling to understand. They do not know what is happening here. And there, there's this sense that they want to know, but they do not know. Now, when, when they get there and Jesus is taken away, what do they do? They run in fear. They're terrified. They, they did not know. They, they, didn't, they don't know what to do. And you wonder, how did this happen? Jesus has told them, and then he told them again, and then he uh, told them again. Matthew 16, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. This is verse 21. Suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And I'm going to be killed, and on the third day, I'm going to be resurrected. That's in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. He tells them again in the, tw- in the 20th chapter, verse 17. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus takes the 12 aside. He says, look, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be delivered to chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. We'll hand him over to the Gentiles, Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life again. And there's more. Every one of the Gospels gives us this image. Mark chapter number 9, verse number 31. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. They knew, but they really didn't know. I want you to, I want you to get this because this is going to be a part of, I'm going to circle back to this at the end. You can say you know something, but if you haven't lived it, you kind of know it. You know, uh, I can tell you that I know something. I can list the things that are expected, but until I have experienced the terror, the fear, the wonderment, there are limits to how much I can say I know. Remember that. Remember this idea. They know, but they don't know. Okay, remember, we're going to come back to this. And so they get on, they get to uh, the uh, city and Jesus is arrested and they, they are terrified and they, they run in fear. Mark explains it like this, chapter 9, verse number 32. They did not understand what Jesus meant and they were afraid to ask him. So let's regather ourselves and, and sum up here. Jesus is committed to going to Jerusalem. You're not going to talk him out of it. Why is he going to Jerusalem? Because he is going to serve as the redemption to cover our sins. He is going to become the, the innocent lamb of God for sinners slain. And by not being distracted by teaching, does teaching need to happen? Yes. Does the neighborhood all know what they need to know? No. 
Does healing need to happen? Yes. Are there plenty of sick people? Yes. But is that a reason not to go to Jerusalem? No. Jesus could have spent 40 years teaching and the people still would not have known. He could have spent 40 years healing and there would have still been sick people. He will not be turned away from going to Jerusalem because there's something I need more than anything else. I need my sins to be washed away. More than anything else in my life, I must be born again. I must have a nature, the nature of God, restored to my heart, restored to my life. Left to my own devices, there is no hope of salvation for Nathan Elms. But if God will be so merciful and watch me in his blood and cleanse me by his mercy, there is a chance that I will see him face to face. There is a chance that I will, this corruption will put on the end corruptible. There is a chance that this world will not be my home. There is a chance that I will not simply die a death of the flesh, but I will rise into newness of life. I, however, need the work of the cross. The disciples fail to understand the redemptive purpose in the life of Jesus Christ. Everybody loves it when 5,000 are fed. Everybody enjoys it when blind eyes are open. Everyone loves it when he expounds teaching that just is so amazing. You kind of sit there as though someone had kicked you. And you're like, holy moly, I never understood that. I never saw that. I never got that before. We all love that. But none of that is redemptive. And Christ's work is redemptive for this this cause he came into the world and he tells the children of uh, he, excuse me he tells James and John that after he rebukes them for wanting to destroy he says the son of man did not come to destroy but the son of man came to save the work of the cross will not be postponed Amen. why does this matter it matters because this is the, the journey, this is the way of the cross. This is the journey to Jerusalem. This is the life that Jesus will not be distracted from. And he, rather than making it easy on his disciples, he, he invites them to perceive that if they're going to be his disciples, they need to have a similar Life, And he says, in almost, I believe in all of the, the, the gospels, certainly all of the synaptic, the synaptic gospels, uh, that is this, Matthew 8 and 34. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know what's astonishing about that? Is he does not say, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, and what I want you to do is I want you to spend the rest of your life having parties where you celebrate me carrying my cross. Wouldn't that be great if that's what he said? Because he could have just called that church. I love to celebrate Christ's victory of the cross. I love good church. You ought to love good church. We ought to get together and we ought to celebrate his victory over death, over hell, over the grave. Can I have some agreement? It ought to be part of who we are. Let me, let me just say this. Christmas and Easter are the two times our society gives you permission to celebrate your theology. 
You should always be social. You should always be social at Easter, and you should always be social at Christmas. You should always invite somebody over for this reason, for Easter or for Christmas. Why? Your society has given you a free get-out-of-jail card to celebrate your theology twice a year, Easter and Christmas. And you know what we're going to do here at First Church? We're going to celebrate his victory over death, hell, and the grave. We're going to remind ourselves that there was a cross we could not carry, and he could, He carried it for us. There was a death he didn't deserve to die, and I deserve to die, and his mercy never fails. It never ends. It's from everlasting to everlasting, but he doesn't simply invite us to celebrate his cross. He invites us to see, hear me, the redemptive purpose in our life. Let me, I've got to talk about this term, the redemptive element or the redemptive purpose. I know it's a a little bit of a kind of highfalutin, churchy, ecclesiastical, theological kind of $5 word, Uh, but I want you to see uh, what it means. I'm going to tell you a story to illustrate it. One of the most uh, famous survivors of World War II was a uh, psychiatrist and neurologist by the name of Viktor Frankl. Uh, He In September of 1942, he was arrested in Vienna where he was working in the hospital system, the health system in Vienna. Uh, He was sent to a Nazi concentration camp with his wife and with his parents. His wife was pregnant. Three years later, when his camp was liberated by Allied forces, All of his family, with the exception of his sister, had died. His pregnant wife had died. Uh, His parents had died. But he, prisoner number 119104, had lived. After he was liberated, he walked out of that camp. And one of the first things he did is he sat down. And in nine days, he wrote a book. Beginning to end, nine days, right after World War II. And it is the quite famous book entitled Man's Search for Meaning. This is what's interesting in the life of Viktor Frankl. He, as a neurologist and a psychologist, he, he specialized in helping people who were deeply depressed and suicidal. During the 30s, when he worked in the health system of the Vienna, uh, Vienna hospitals, he, he was a specialist working with people who had attempted to commit suicide. Uh, while he was a prisoner in, in the concentration camps, various camps that the Nazi regime had placed him in, uh, he uh, was very instrumental in working with people who were either planning to commit suicide or had already tried to commit suicide. Uh, in one of the ghettos that the Nazis set up to try to con- de- de- deceive the Red Cross that they weren't killing Jews, they set up a model ghetto and they invited the Red Cross to come and inspect it. Uh, he was sent there as a therapist for the, the Jews that were held there. And uh, During this time, he talked to hundreds and hundreds of, of prisoners and tried to talk them out of committing suicide. Some of them were hopeless and uh, he tried to he tried to uh, help them through this great great depression great great terror who isn't who isn't deeply depressed in a concentration camp most of us are depressed on a long road trip with small children um, he, he he he's working with these people and he he's helping them and uh, he 
he came up with something called uh, uh, logo, logotherapy. Um, three things involved in logotherapy, and it was the result of his many years in the 30s working with suicidal patients, his experiences in the concentration camps, and that's what he wrote when he came out after the concentration camp, sat down, locked himself in a room, nine days wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He put a formula into place. Now, I want to be clear. Dr. Viktor Frankl was not a, was not a Christian. Uh, he was not a believer in the sense that we are. Uh, but he wrote this book, and he said three things, three things. Any individual, no matter how bad their circumstances, no matter how terrible their reality, uh, there's things they can do that will help them survive. Uh, he tells the story in his book of people he talked out of, of committing suicide. The first thing is, what can you do? All of you have had a journey that have brought you to this moment. All of you have talents and skills and abilities that have uniquely prepared you for this moment. You have a journey. Somebody say, I have a journey. Not only that, you are gifted. God has richly gifted you. Say it with me. I am gifted. God has uniquely prepared you. You have had a journey. You have a set of gifts. There are things you can do that I cannot do. I cannot sing very good. I cannot cook very good. But I am very good at eating everything in the kitchen. And we all have our gifts. And I just want to be a blessing. You have been uniquely prepared by God to do something that you can do. So remember, the first thing that Viktor Frankl said, in spite of how terrible your situation is, you have to acknowledge and perceive your uniqueness. You have to perceive your abilities. You have to see what you can do. But that is not enough. That is not enough. The next thing you have to do is you have to perceive the redemptive element of what it is you can do for the world. He said, if you want to be an architect, be an architect that seeks to make the world a better place for other people. If you're a physician, be a physician that lives for helping other people. If you are, whatever you can do, whatever your talents are, Identify with those and then see the redemptive element that is in them. The world would be better if you would do what you are able to do. This is his point. There is no dignity in suffering if it's only about you. There is no, in fact, there's one story of a, a, a guard, and this is a, this is a dark story, but I think it shows. Uh, one, one prisoner was just going to commit suicide. He was going to uh, throw himself on an electrified fence, or he was going to step into one of the no-step zones where the guards would, and the towers would kill him. And, and Victor Frankl is trying to talk him out of it. And he says, look, if you just die, it's just the end of you. It doesn't make a difference. But literally, if you hold out, when death comes, if it does, you will have made the world a slightly better place by exposing evil with your death. Dark, yes, I know. Hear me. You have a journey. You have a set of abilities. And if all you do is live for yourself, there is no dignity in your pain. There is no dignity in your suffering. But the moment you recognize you have been uniquely prepared and uniquely positioned to minister to certain people in certain places and certain time, suddenly everything you have gone through is not simply the story of your survival. It is the story of divine preparation for you to make a difference in the world where God has placed you. 
And so, uh, number one, identify what your gifts and talents are. Number two, find a redemptive element that is within that. Number three, take people with you. These are the three things that he talked about in the three essences of, uh, and of course there's different ways to interpret these things, but uh, I want you to see the, the heart of it here today. Jesus walks the road to Jerusalem and he says to his disciples, I, I, I don't simply want you to celebrate what I'm doing. I want you to consider that you have your own road. And I want you to consider that you have your own cross to carry. I want you to see that you can live for others. This begins to sound like the epistles that John wrote at the end of his life. After all the gospels have been written, after all the epistles have been written, the last living apostle is John. And he has only recently been brought back from exile. And returning to the church, he writes three epistles. First, second, and third John. You can read them. This is his opportunity to correct anybody who got anything wrong. He's the last living apostle. If he disagrees with Paul, he can correct it now. If he disagrees with Peter, he can correct it now. If the church is misunderstanding the words of Jesus, he can correct it now. He is the last preacher on the itinerary of the apostolic movement. And read his books. What does he say? He repeats this over and over. Don't say you love God. If you can't love your brother, you can't love your sister. You cannot pay God back, but you can pay his love forward. Can we as people of faith see the redemptive element of our life? Some of you guys have gone through terrible things, but it's not just the story of your survival. You are uniquely prepared and uniquely positioned to be a voice of hope in your world. A church that can see this changes everything because it's not just about surviving. It is about speaking hope to people who are going through something just like it. Remember what I said about the disciples. They could know, but they really didn't know. So it is with our life. You can tell people what's going to happen, but until they have lived through it, they really don't know what's the hardest things that you've gone through. What's the hardest things I've gone through? We can sit here all day and tell other people what it's going to be like, but they haven't gone through it. The day they go through it, then they're going to know. Your survival has no dignity if it's just a story of you, but the moment you put a testimony on your survival, meaning begins to flow in your life. You begin to take up your cross, not just celebrate his cross, but you take up your cross and you say, I survived to tell somebody they can make it too. I survived to sing of how his mercy endures forever. I survived to say God is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I, I'm done, musicians. You can come. I, I want to, I want to, at last, the last thing I want to share with you here today, and there, I have a lot of material that I, that, that show this story over and over again, and this principle re-illustrated, repeat, repeating, repetitively uh, through the scripture and also the testimony of our own lives. Um, what we see uh, here in the, in the scripture is this reality of, of Christ being an all points tempted like as we are 
are yet without sin. I, I spent a lot of time this week thinking about that, and I, I put it in my prayer, and I asked the Lord repeatedly uh, th- that question. I, I have the habit of doing that. I'm sure if someone uh, eavesdropped on me praying, uh, they would be somewhat concerned that the preacher was very confused. Um, I often feel very, very confused. I, I truly do, and I, so many times my prayer will be will, will have the sound of this, Lord, Lord, you, 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 you gave us through the anointed writer, you gave us this image of how you were in all points tempted like as we are. And yet you are without sin. Why, why did we need to see you as tempted in all points like we are? And then I'll just take a moment. You think I fell asleep. I hadn't fell asleep. I'm just trying to make space in my life. My life is so cluttered. And I believe if you're going to be spiritual, you have to, you have to make space. I wish I could just tell you all you can do is just listen to talk radio and watch sports and you'd be spiritual, but I'm sorry. That hasn't been my experience. You have to make space. You have to make quiet time. And I asked, I've asked the Lord this question over and over. Why was it important? You see, when you think in terms of redemption, oh man, I feel the spirit of the Lord so strong right now. You think in terms of uh, redemption, we needed a spotless lamb, right? We understand that. Uh, we needed a worthy covering. And so we know he had to, be spotless. We know there could be no sin in him. But the Bible doesn't just say he was spotless. It doesn't just say he was innocent, so to speak, to use a modern phrase. It says he was innocent in spite of being in all points tempted like as we are. And so I kept in my prayer, kept seeing this image of he's not just pure, but he's pure through the storm. Oh, y'all didn't hear what I just said, but maybe later on you'll understand what what I'm, I'm trying to say. He wasn't just holy. He was holy through the horror. And I, I kept praying all week long, I was driving and thinking and praying and sitting in my office. All points tempted. You weren't just spotless. You were spotless having been tested. And uh, Saturday morning here in prayer, uh, we had church prayer here Saturday morning at nine. And I was really, I was really, I was, sometimes I pray it's so easy. Full disclosure, sometimes I lose track of time. I know that makes me sound spiritual and that's because I am. Thank you very much. Um, But sometimes it's so easy to pray. I just lose track of time. But Saturday I just was fighting. I couldn't get there. I couldn't find any flow. I couldn't be caught up. I'm just fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and all of a sudden, I was reminded in the middle of my prayer. If you want to understand Hebrews 4, all points tempted, you have to understand Hebrews 7. You have to turn the page because it's all of a piece. And in Hebrews 7, what do you see? You see Jesus ascending, offering, hear me, woo, intercession. Somebody say intercession. The flesh of God who survived all temptation and yet was pure, offers intercession for us to the eternal spirit, the flesh, to the eternal spirit. And the moment I saw all points tempted creates an intercessor. I begin to think of all you people and some of the horrible things you have gone through. And I came here today to tell you, 
It's not enough for you simply to have survived what you've gone through. You are now highly qualified to offer up intercession for somebody who is going through the same thing you survived. Church, there's no spiritual purpose in just surviving. We must find the redemptive element, what we do for other people, how we help other people. Some of you guys have gone through terrible sickness and you're still here as a testimony. When someone else is sick, you're the one who needs to call their name out to the Lord. You, some of you guys have gone through terrible hits in your life. You've been broke. You've gone through relationship failure. Gone through divorce, you've gone through so many things, and here you are, a testimony. I'm here to tell you. You may think you're just a survivor, but I see a powerful intercessor. No one can pray like someone who's come through it. Oh, I said no one can intercede like someone who has come through it. God is inviting you to pick up his cross, his call, and walk your road with it. We all of us have a journey. Let's all stand. We all, oh, I want to pray for some people here today. I, I want this to get down into your spirit here today. We all of us have been invited. We all of us have been challenged to pick up the redemptive purpose in our life, our cross. You know the road you walk. You know the job you have. You know the pain you've suffered. You know the experiences you have survived. That's your road. But your road's not enough. That's just a survival story. You need to see how your life has a redemptive element in it and your testimony can tell other people you're not alone God is going to be with you if I made it you can make it if I came through you can come through we are made co-laborers don't have time to preach that with him when we pick up our cross and we walk our road with it. Our praise team is going to lead us into praise and worship. I, I, really, want to, I really want to pray here today. I want to invite all of you who will to, to step out, come down to the front. I want, to, I want to speak the name of Jesus over some of you. My uh, pastoral team is going to come down here with us, and we're going to move among you. And I'd like us, each of us, to redefine the worst things that has happened in our life. And instead of seeing it as horror we survived, I want you to see it as a qualification for an arena of ministry that you never perceived before now. I want to say it again. Whatever the worst thing you've survived, what's the worst thing you've come through? I want you to quit seeing it as a survival story. And I want you to start claiming it as a ministry qualification. Lead us in worship. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to support our efforts, text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.